I'm your host, Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron. A military history podcast. And in today's episode, we're covering the battle between Uma and Lagash. The beginning is usually where storytellers like to start, for obvious reasons. Uh, Some, though, get a little funky with things and think of um, Homer's Odyssey dropping the reader in ten years after the war with Troy and well into the protagonist's fateful homeward journey. Or think of the famous opening scene of Vince Gilligan's Breaking Bad when the viewer gets thrown into that stinking, boiling camper van slash meth factory in the middle of the New Mexican desert. In medius res is Latin for in the midst of things, and it's a a literary tool that can kind of kick a story into high gear right from the beginning by basically starting the audience out in the middle of the story. It's also, for good or ill, how history and especially the history of warfare has to be told. We know organized violence of some form or another was practiced by humans all over the world a very, very long time ago. We just don't know exactly when that started or, more importantly, for a better understanding of our species maybe, why that started. Graves found in Kenya and Egypt dating from the Paleolithic time period reveal several skeletons with blunt force spear and arrow injuries. While cave paintings from the Neolithic period depict clearly what would have been advanced forms of combat compared to the earlier ambush or raid attack. It's possible that warfare as we know it developed when some nomadic spear and simple bow hunting groups in pre-civilizational times vied with each other for productive hunting grounds. But organized aggression could have also developed at the hinge point of civilizational upheaval the point at which roughly 6,000 years ago some groups began to form settlements. Tilling the soil quickly proved its value as some of these settlements overproduced, creating surpluses of food that could be traded for goods or doled out to the locals, literally feeding a boom in population. Soon villages became towns, towns proto-cities, and finally full-blown cities emerged. These surpluses might have been a fat, tempting prize for any well-armed nomadic band that was roaming around nearby. Still, uh, another possible road to organized warfare is the, the, quote, land dispute angle. As farming became more and more widespread and more and more of a science with technological innovation and trial and error improvement, land became not just important, but essential. The more land, the better, and the better the quality, the more groups were willing to pay, not just in money or goods, but in blood. So to me, and I'm not a historian, I'm going to say that a thousand times over this uh, reiteration of Cauldron, but I I don't know what I'm talking about other than to say I've read a lot, I think about this a lot, and, um, you know, I, my opinion here is that it seems likely that the origins of war probably lay in all of those above-listed reasons and probably a dozen or other more places or reasons that we've yet to uncover and may never even figure out. 
which is why for the relaunch of Cauldron, I've chosen this fight between Uma and Lagash as our starting point. Certainly, it is not the first battle in human history, but in my humble, non-historian opinion, it's the first one that we can really get a clear narrative picture of. It's ancient, ancient history. It's 2,116 years before Alexander crossed the Hellespont, so dates, facts, and numbers are loose where present at all, but there are character archetypes that we're familiar with. A great and greedy king, a ravenous, bloodthirsty god, and there are recognizable themes at play. There's revenge, there's jealousy, there's pride, there's a lust for power that are all too human, that make a lot of sense. And all of this means uh, that we can, we can only broad stroke the battle. I can't give a deep dive into tactics or anything like that, but you know, it's something that we can kind of give a feel for. Given the lack of information and facts, a true glimpse of the past is impossible, but through Tuckman's distant mirror, we can kind of get an image of what it looked like. We can form a picture uh, however loosely of that long-gone version of ourselves, and we can start to tell our story, the history of war, if not from its very beginning, then somewhere close by. So let's get in Medes Res and get stuck in with the episode number one of the relaunch of Cauldron, the battle between Uma and Lagash. Written history begins some 5,000 years ago, in the 3,000 to 2,600 BCE range, and gives us some idea, however shadowy, of the world emerging from the mists of prehistory. The Sumerians were a people from the region of southern Mesopotamia, modern-day southern Iraq. Located between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, the eastern end of what your high school history teacher most likely etched into your memory as the Fertile Crescent, Sumer, or Sumeria, was a constellation of powerful city-states. It wasn't really a defined kingdom or empire or anything like that. Uh, it was just a, a, a region that had a lot of powerful, uh, a lot of mid-range and mid-level cities, and a lot of like tributary um, subsidiary cities. So cities like Kish, Ur, Uruk, Nippur, and Uma and Lagash grew fat on the healthy and fecund soil of the two life-giving rivers. Irrigation injected populations with the equivalent of civilizational steroids, allowing for larger and larger numbers of people to be supported and fed. But once on that path, food production had to be kept up, and so more and more lands were needed for farming. The geographical region being small and this need for land uh, becoming larger and larger caused friction between the many city-states and inevitably led to bloodshed. It's that land dispute reason for war that we talked about in the very opening there. Um, now, these proto-states were nothing like what we have now in terms of government and societal structure. They really weren't even states. They were all independent and ruled by various uh, oligarchies. Some had deified monarchs, some were priest-run palace bureaucracies, and some were even like kind of rudimentary electorates. Um, there's, it's a really interesting little subset of history. I can't suggest enough for you to go and, and dive into it. I just don't have the time now to break down all the various governmental forms that the Sumerian cities took on, but it is kind of interesting. And you see 
the the very twinkle in the eye of the father kind of situation for a lot of different types of governments throughout history. So I definitely suggest you check it out, but um, we're going to move on from there. The urge to conquer stirred in the breasts of some of the early kings of the city of Kish. And for a time, the king of Kish would rule the entire region. And this was important because as time passed on, any uh, empire that was built in the region would get the ceremonial title of the king of Kish to go to the leader of that city. So uh, if you were a ruler of a city in Sumer or Sumeria and you ruled the region and had control, uh, particularly if you had control of Kish, but even if you didn't, sometimes you still got the title of king of Kish as a kind of tip of the cap to you being the most powerful guy on the block. One such king of Kish was called to negotiate a land dispute between two mid-level cities that had been on and off warring for centuries, and that would be Uma and Lagash. The flat, irrigated land laying in between these two cities was rich and profitable, and whoever owned it would be in a solid position to build up its sphere of influence in the region. And sphere of influence is kind of the unwritten area that you control, so like... Uh, China's sphere of influence would be Southern Asia, um, Southeast Asia, but like a, a city like Lagash would have a sphere of influence with about 50 miles radius around the epicenter or the city itself. Uh, the ruling of the mediator King of Kish went in favor of Uma, and a marker was inscribed and placed at the newly recognized boundary, giving them that fertile ground in between the two cities. Lagash was obviously furious, and when King Ianadam took the throne of Lagash years after the decision was made, uh, he swore revenge on the hated enemy, the city of Uma. Before he could muster his troops, though, he needed to consult the protector god of Lagash, Ninnagirsu, and find out what he thought he should do. Cities and gods of this time period had very close and personal relationships. In some instances, most famously Babylon, a city's power derived from the idolic statue of whatever god was the protector of that city. In the case of Babylon, it's Marduk, and it was said that if you, whoever took the hands of Marduk in like a handshake on the statue, uh, and Marduk was a solid gold statue, I think it was like five feet tall, um, if you took the hands of Marduk, you were officially recognized as the king or emperor or ruler of Babylon. And what's really interesting in my view is that a lot of the identity of these cities was wrapped up in these uh, idols and, and deities. So if a conqueror came to your city and destroyed your idols, it was seen that your god had no more power um, and that you rightfully should be subjugated or destroyed. Uh, or in the case of Marduk in Babylon, I think it was either Cyrus or Darius or Darius the Great who uh, went into Babylon. I forget which one, but one of them went in and took Marduk and basically held the city of Babylon hostage, saying, uh, well, if you don't do what I want you to do, if you don't act good, uh, I'm going to melt down your city uh, via the statue of Marduk. So it's an interesting relationship that these cities had with their gods, and Lagash is no different. Ninagirsu had started as kind of an agrarian healer god, but as the military needs of Lagash became more and more evolved and grew, the need for a warrior deity grew as well. 
Ianatam went to Ninigirsu and sought the bloodthirsty god's advice. Uh, what should his humble servant do about the pesky men of Uma? Well, shockingly to no one, Ninigirsu said to gather an army to attack Uma, and if he did so, Ianatam's chariot will have to roll over the skulls of Lagash's fallen enemy, and Uma's bodies will uh, pile up so high that they'll reach the very heavens themselves. The blood spilt would be a sufficient tax paid to Ninigirsu and all the earthly riches that could be hauled off to Lagash, and Ianatam's coffers would be theirs. Not one to defy the wishes of a god, Ianatum had the war drum dusted off and beaten, and the army of Lagash gathered and prepared for battle. Now, it's very likely that this army was a thrown-together warband war of untrained conscripts like many or most of the armies of the time and area. That being said, I think it may have been a regular, if not necessarily a standing army. You see, the Stellae of the Vultures, which I'll explain later, depicts a tight phalanx of men marching and fighting in lockstep. That doesn't just happen overnight like in a rocky montage. Weeks and months are required for the phalanx to function effectively and properly. And think of the issues of command and control at the time. There are no radios. Every order is given by voice or signal, so it has to be within immediate view or hearing. And this is a true phalanx with columns, files, and locked shields, the kind of thing that war wouldn't see, to our knowledge, again until Greece some 2,000 years later. And it looks like this is the centerpiece of the attack, like this is the focal point of Lagash's uh, you know, battle plan. It's the, the rolling pin that either destroys the enemy by weight of numbers or pins them uh, while light troops and missiles work on the enemy flanks. This is all just leads me to the opinion, and again, I'm not a historian, I have to stress that, but it kind of leads me to think that there was something more to it. I've got my little historical detective cap on, and I'm thinking, okay, there's there are pieces here that are connecting. And another clue that this army may have been a standing one is the dress. They seem to all be outfitted with a standard helmet and kit. And the helmets are bronze, conical, and they cover most of the head and neck. Uh, and from the shoulder to the foot, the spearmen are protected by a full-length shield. And the points of all their spears are level and jutting out at the enemy ahead. Again, definitely not a bunch of guys who were in a field, uh, you know, in the afternoon, and then all of a sudden told to throw on a bunch of gear and start marching. The uniformity and clear design behind the phalanx of Lagash all leads one to believe that this was not the first collective rodeo. And there are other weapons on the Stele of the Vultures. I'll get back to that. Um, so the, the Stele of the Vultures, let me just divert for a second to cover this amazing little piece of, uh, of, of tangible history. Um, the Stele of the Vultures, or Steel or Stele, uh, is so named because it depicts these gluttonous vultures feasting on the Uma battlefield dead. Uh, it was found in Iraq in the late 1800s. It's limestone. It is a victory monument that was basically like a drive-in movie theater of its day. Two large panels, five feet tall, four feet wide. Uh, there's about, I think, like six or seven pieces left. But on it, it depicts the awesome power of Ian Adams' war machine. Uh, if you're at the Louvre, where it currently lives in France, track it down and send in some pics. We'd love to either, you know, 
hear about your trip or see what it looked like. So, back to the weapons. Swords were of the sickle variety, and they were fairly small at this point in history, and probably more for ceremonial or status symbol purposes. Um, the bronze at this point in history, it was, wasn't was strong enough to make for a long slashing or hacking type sword. There wasn't a uh, high enough, uh, I guess, according to what I've read, there wasn't enough tin uh, within it to really give it that strength that it needs to, to elongate the blade. Axes had usurped the mace for its ability to slice and bash into bronze helmets, whereas the uh, mace would you know, likely just kind of dent it but slide off. An axe will either crumple it in or slice into it, uh, causing severe damage. And slings and bows we know existed, uh, they were known and, and even likely used. At one point, as we'll talk about later, Ian Adam is hit uh, and wounded by an arrow. But there's very little depiction in the source material or the artifactual evidence that they were used on any large scale in terms of warfare. Uh, both take a lot of experience and practice to perfect. Uh, it's something that you would have, you know, likely would have been used with some regularity by light troops uh, in, in, a, in addition to light javelins, uh, but there isn't a heck of a lot of depiction of them. Bows, though, would become uh, major weapons later in the region's timeline under Sargon, but again, at the time of Lagash, they seem to have been uh, little used. Whether a standing army or not, Lagash's men moved out and arrived at the battlefield ready to fight. Uh, given the distance and time, we have no idea where or exactly when, uh, but it's safe to say that it was probably some flat expanse in the region between Uma and Lagash, probably even something that the two sides like agreed upon, set the date, and said, we'll meet you here, uh, because it would be a, a real waste of time, energy, and uh effort and treasure to go out and, and get everybody ready for war and then not have anybody to fight. Uh, I think that's a, a line in a song or something. Uh, what would happen if they gave a war and nobody showed up? Well, in this instance, it would be a pain in the neck for whatever side was out there waiting for an enemy to show up. Uh, the two forces lined up and readied themselves for the fight. And again, given the distance, numbers are hard to figure on. One source I read said five thousand uh, or three thousand to five thousand men on each side and one source said it was probably five hundred to a thousand uh, it's anybody's guess there's no way we'll probably ever know but i'll lean towards the smaller side um, if i'm wrong let me know Ian Adam rode to the front of the line in his ponderous, clunky, ass-led war chariot. And I am saying ass-led because that is accurate. It was hauled around by uh, donkeys, and it was more like a cart, in my opinion, but uh, who's asking? These massive, slow-moving, solid-wheeled chariots, again, we're using that term pretty liberally, are nothing like their nimble, swift Egyptian progeny. Uh, they probably functioned more as a mobile command center, a way for the king to get around the battlefield quickly, and also a way for him to be seen to do so for morale's sake. It would have also had an effect on the enemy. If your side doesn't have any of these things, which would have been like um, uh, the high-tech version of a tank to a simple farmer at the time, you might get a little loose bowel syndrome amongst your men. 
the battle itself was probably quick and dirty. Like most through history, the side that broke first suffered worst, and Uma seems to have been the unlucky side. Again, numbers are unknown. One source said a thousand dead, another said a hundred to two hundred. Either way, a good portion of Uma's army perished. We can assume that the phalanx did its nasty business of piercing, pounding, and pulverizing anything in front of it, uh, because we know that's eventually what phalanxes do throughout history, especially when they're facing anybody other than a legion. Uh, and once the enemy was in flight, even the slow-moving war cart of Ianatum, I, I'm dispensing with the chariot myth here and just going to call it a war cart, um, that would have probably become a fairly deadly missile platform uh, raining down javelin hell on the fleeing men of Uma. Even if he could only move in, you know, very slow directions, you, you can still imagine that he's in his moment here to really become the, the war chieftain, uh, flinging away javelins. He might even have had a, another warrior with him, maybe a champion of some sort, who would also have been uh, helping out. Um, he was wounded by an arrow, again, according to the st steel of the vultures, but it was clearly not fatal or even very harmful because Ianatum would go on to uh, be a fairly successful conqueror. Uma was crushed and forced to give over land and riches. The subjugation was so thorough that Uma became little more than a tributary state and fell off the historical map. Lagash, however, became the powerhouse in the region for some time, and Ianatum conquered all of Sumer and more, controlling the trade routes from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean coast, as with all empires, time itself would prove the most indomitable enemy, and Lagash would eventually fall, consigned, like Uma, to historical insignificance. Had these two cities not fought, I'm sure that the beginning of war would have been depicted somewhere else, but Uma and Lagash had the distinction of being the first contenders in an actual recognizable battle, and so we have to give them their due and what could be a possible better first battle for the reboot of Cauldron to cover than that between Uma and Lagash. All right, guys, thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe. You can even rate and review on Spotify now, so go to iTunes and do that and go to Spotify and do that. Check out the Wednesday night live streams at 8 o'clock EST on Instagram. Check out the Great Commander series on TikTok. I'm doing short little uh, bios on military history's greatest commanders in the form of wrestling announcements. And next up is a fight with real war chariots. Uh, and so stay tuned for that. And as always, thanks again. And have a good one.